What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Words. <laughs> what is up, everybody? And welcome back to the Breakline Arena. It is Sophia, your hostess with the mostest, and we have so many exciting things that we want to roll out in the arena this year, one of which is we have a brand new co-host. So I am so excited to get to introduce you guys to her. This conversation that we are sharing today is with Bruce Feiler. Definitely going to dive into his background in just a minute, but this was one of Kenny Vaughn's um, last recorded conversations in the arena. We love him. We are so grateful to him. Um, and I am so excited to introduce you guys to our newest co-host, Chelsea. Hello, hello, everybody. My name is Chelsea Conley, and I am so pumped to be here. Stepped into some big shoes. Don't worry about it. I dressed super fancy. I'm wearing my prom dress. You can't mm -hmm. see me, but I am. And I'm really excited to be here having these important conversations with you, Sophia. Oh my gosh. Chelsea, will you tell the good people of the arena what you do here at Breakline? Yes, I am a talent recruiter on Team Breakline. And essentially, I'm finding those stellar rock stars out there in the world, bringing them in so we can find them exciting jobs in tech. It's a blast. Mm, it is a blast. And Chelsea's also keeping it humble, y'all. She is a performer. She did a stint at Second City. She is a salesperson. Like, this girl knows her stuff. Stop oh, it. Stop it. Oh, my gosh. It. No, your background speaks for yourself. Um, and so excited to share this space with you. Our conversation today is with Bruce Filer. And Kenny did a tremendous job of hosting this conversation with Bruce. Bruce, if you guys are unfamiliar... He is the author of seven New York Times bestsellers. He is the presenter of two primetime series on PBS. He was the inspiration for the drama series, Council of Dads on NBC. I mean, he's got receipts for days. He's done viral TED Talks. Um, and a lot of what this conversation is surrounding is his newest book, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. So Chelsea, for our listeners, what was something that you're really excited to share with them? Thanks for asking. This conversation is so timely right mm -hmm. now. It's it's a really interesting conversation. And my favorite quote is when he says, the linear life is dead. Mm -hmm. That really speaks to me. It sounds really dramatic, but it essentially means that we don't have to follow one path. It's in our control. We can make pivots. We can make changes. We can adapt and overcome. And that's what he talks about for a majority of this conversation. I, I think people are going to dig it. Yes. And the last few years, there have been so many transitions that have happened kind of outside of the realms of each of our mm -hmm. controls. This conversation is going to equip our listeners with, with tools and honestly with comfort, just knowing that people are relating to this topic. Mm -hmm. um, and you really are going to have some insights into how to handle these transitions a little bit more smoothly. So without further ado, I think we should hop right in. Let's do it. We will see you guys on the other side. How we doing out there, folks? My name is Kenny Vaughn. I play for Team Breakline, and I am so tremendously excited and quite frankly honored 
to be in the Breakline Arena with Bruce Filer. Bruce, I don't want to steal your bio. I don't want to steal your resume, but you've done some impressive things over the course of your lifetime. You are a multiple uh, best-selling New York Times author. You've got multiple TED Talks. You've just lived a tremendously fascinating life. I don't want to steal your thunder. Would you mind taking a moment just introducing yourself to our listeners? Well, let's just start with the most important thing. The quotation in my senior high school yearbook at the Savannah Country Day School was, the credit belongs to the man in the arena. So that means the credit belongs to you, my new friend. So I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's honored to be, uh, now, what happens when I step into the arena? Am I gonna run out, am I gonna walk out of here with some bruises and a broken jaw and you with your hands <laughs> raised and me to be knocked out on the, on the canvas? We're about to find that out. But let's just, first of all, take credit to someone who's taken risks uh, in, uh, in your life as, as you have done. Um, well, I would say in the context of the conversation that we're about to have, I think of my life you know, there's many ways that you can think about your life. I think about my life in a lot of ways um, as two parts, right? One of my favorite sayings is, there are two types of people in the world. People who divide the world into two types of people and people who don't. But I'm going to divide my life into two parts. And the first part, I'm going to say, for the purposes of this conversation, I was living a kind of conventional linear life. So I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, five generations of Jews. I left there and went to Yale in the 80s. I left there and went to Japan. I started writing letters home on crinkly airmail paper. Now, you were so young, you have no idea what that is, unless you saw it, in, you know, not even the internet doesn't talk about it. Like, actual history books was, you know, the onion skin paper so thin, you know, lines would be crickety and, rook and, and crooked, and you had to, like, put lines underneath it so that the, uh, that the writing would be straight. And I sent these letters home to Georgia. When I got back to Georgia six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother Xeroxed them and passed them around and they went viral in the old fashioned sense of the word. And I thought, well, I should write a book about this. And so it doesn't happen this way. But I sold my first book at 24. And that was 32 years ago this month. And I've never held a job since. So in my 20s, I wrote books about Japan, about England, um, I spent a year as a, a clown in a traveling circus, Clyde Beatty Cold Brother Circus. <laughs> I was in Nashville writing a book on country music when I had this idea that I should know more about the Bible. And so I spent a year crisscrossing the Middle East, climbing Mount Ararat, looking for Noah's Ark. So then I spent a year crisscrossing the Middle East, um, climbing Mount Ararat, looking for Noah's Ark, crossing the Red Sea. I wrote a book called Walking the Bible that became a thing. Spent a year and a half on the bestseller list, and then I spent the next tech 10 years going back and forth writing books and making television about the Middle East and terrorism and can we get along, interfaith relations. During these years, I got married and had children, and this is what I was saying is the kind of a classic linear life. But then in my 40s, I suddenly got beat up by life. First, I got cancer uh, as a new dad, uh, as you know, uh, of three-year-old identical twin daughters. That was the year of the Great Recession, and I had financial troubles. And then my father, who had Parkinson's at the time, got very depressed and tried to take his own life uh, six times in 12 weeks. And as somebody who's a storyteller and who thinks about the world through the, you know, uh, sort of through the prism of stories, I didn't know how to tell that story. I didn't want to tell that story. 
But when I did, what I found is that everybody feels that their life has been disrupted in one way or another, that their life, kind of life they're living is not the life they expected, that they're living life out of order. And so, you know, I bring that up because that's the two halves of my life, like the linear part of my life and the nonlinear part of my life. And now what that sort of combined to is this sort of what's now become my life's work, which is now four years collecting over 400 life stories of Americans of all ages and all walks of life, uh, all 50 states, trying to understand how, since we all have lives in some ways that are nonlinear, how we can navigate that, how we can navigate the disruptions and interruptions and, and uh, other events that redirect our lives and try to p help people get through those times with more effectiveness and more skill. So I want to I want to pull this back for a second. I want to run a couple of these things in slow motion because uh, th there is quite a huge deal of humility in what you just got done sharing. Um, you said you wrote a couple of books, um, six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. That is quite a feat. Um, Council of Dads, which tremendously inspiring story there, ended up um, becoming an NBC. Uh, drama series, uh, and you have multiple TED Talks which have a million plus views. So I absolutely love the humility that you bring into um, your life story. And I'm interested as someone who, you know, is, is now a podcast host and gets a chance to listen to a number of stories, I'd love if you could unpack a little bit more the life story project because um, based on my understanding, it was the foundation of um, your book, Life is in the Transitions. Why are the stories or the narratives that we tell ourselves about our lives so important? Well, let's begin here, okay? Let's just, each of, each of us and every, anybody listening to us, just stop for a second and listen to that story going on in your head, right? It's there in the background somewhere. It's the story you tell yourself about who you are and where you came from and where you're going. If It's the story you tell others about who you are and where you came from and where you're going, right? Um, imagine you were on a first date tonight, right? Or you were meeting a doctor for the first time, or you were on a long airplane ride, or in a job interview, right? These are all occasions when we tell the story of who we are. So that has been there for a very long time. But really, in the history of civilization, there's been only a few decades where we've begun to study that life story and how it shapes both our understanding of uh, our lives and how we conduct ourselves in our lives so that we understand that that story now isn't just part of us. It is us in a fundamental way, right? Life is the story that you tell yourself. We know that from uh, brain research, uh, which ex helps us explain and understand that um, uh, our brains are wired to tell stories. So let's just say I tell a story here. Let's just say I'm talking to you from my home in Brooklyn, and let's just say that I told you that there was a massive uh, snowstorm last night, okay? Uh, two feet of snow fell from the ground, okay? And so I'm going to get up, I'm going to wash my face, and I'm going to get dressed, and I'm going to walk down the stairs, and I'm going to open up my front door, and what do I see? 
Okay, when I tell you what I've just told you, you have a clear vision of what you think I'm going to see. Now I'm going to tell you the story. It snowed two feet last night, okay? I got up, I washed my face, I got dressed, I opened up the door, and what did I see? A giant pile of donuts. Okay, you think that I'm going to say, I see white, I see a blanket of snow, I see, right, a, a, a sort of beautiful scene uh, out of a you know, lithograph from the, the 19th century. But as soon as I, and if I, in fact, said that, you would sort of nod off a little, right? Because you're telling a story and I'm telling a story at the same time, and you think you know what I'm going to say. But once I say that I've seen a giant pile of donuts, that surprises you and you perk up. That's actually a brain reaction that you have. You perk up because that pile of donuts is an unexpected thing in the story. Now what's going to happen? Okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to turn around and go back inside? Okay, am I going to push aside the donuts? Am I going to start eating the donuts? What we have here is a problem that needs a resolution. Okay, you know, in narrative terms, we have a plot twist. Okay, so now let's just take that and then let's imagine our lives, okay? Things that happen in the course of our lives. Or we have a story that we're going to tell about our lives. What is the pandemic, okay? What is a car crash, okay? What is a downsizing? What is a, a natural disaster, okay? Those are giant piles of donuts, okay? Those are disruptions. Those are plot twists. So while the kind of the brain research of the last 20 years has helped us understand that we're all telling a story all the time, it doesn't actually do as good of a job uh, of telling us what to do with piles of donuts. That's what I went through in my 40s. I had the most unusual pile of donuts. I had an adult onset pediatric cancer that only 100 adults a year get, okay? Then I have unexpected major economic event in the Great Recession, and then my dad is depressed and trying to take his own life. So what I did was to go out and talk to people, now it's been 400 people in four years, um, who have confronted giant piles of donuts. And then i doing what you do all day, which is I just listened to them. And what happened was certain kind of patterns became clear. So... Oh, can I ask, yeah, can I ask you a question about this real quick? What what was it that inspired you to do that? Because I know each one of us is navigating our own journey and we have different responses to things. What was it that made you in that moment say, the answer for me is to go out and to seek the story, seek the perspectives and see what parallels I can draw across such a wide diverse landscape of the lived experience? Well, the short answer is the pile of donuts did not come with an instruction man manual. It didn't tell me what to do with it. Um, <laughs> and therefore, I didn't know what to do with it. And I've been doing this long enough, as I said, 32 years, where I realized, well, if I have a question that I don't know the answer to and that I can't find the answer to and that I can't find a book I want to read or a TED Talk I want to listen to or a podcast that I want to download, then... I better go create it because that's the essence of what I do is I kind of live this not traditional life, which is I have a question like, oh, what can you learn from the Bible by going to the places and reading it? Like, oh, what can you learn about America uh, from the back lot of a, of, a, of a circus caravan? So like that's kind of the thing that I do, um, this non-traditional, non-linear life that I've lived. So all I know, and this is sort of the key point to me, which is that all I know at the beginning is I'm just going to go ask a bunch of people like, what the heck did you do with your pile of donuts? Okay, so in some ways, it's, it's an incredibly 
uninventive thing to do. It's like the most old-fashioned thing you do. Go talk to people, right? Studs Terkel was doing this in the 60s and the 1970s. Just go sit down with people and say, okay, Kenny, what'd you do with your pile of donuts? Then the unexpected thing happened, which is that it turned out that what Kenny did with his pile of donuts, okay, with your background, is exactly what my mother did with her pile of donuts, okay? Now, I didn't interview you, and I didn't interview my mother, um, although I'll come back to my mother later, uh, because I have a kind of a new insight based on something that's happened in the last few days, frankly, that I've not written about. So what I was doing is I was just talking to Kenny, tell me your story. And so then I heard all these patterns, and I was like, well, well, this is interesting. It turns out that people from different backgrounds and different states with different color and flavored donuts do similar things. And so now what do I have? What do I have? I have 6,000 pages of transcripts. I have 1,000 hours of interviews. I then get a crew of people, and then we read them, and we code them, and we look for these patterns, right? So kind of the way... I think about this as Studs Terkel, who did this with countless books in the 1970s. He just talked to people and quoted them. Um, I used this kind of modern data analytics. So it, I was sort of, you have mentioned the TED thing a couple of times. Like, it was like Studs Terkel meets TED. Like, let's take all these conversations and modern analytics, and then let's see what we can find. And that's how I stumbled into disruptors and life quakes and life transitions and these various tools. I didn't go looking for that. It just kept slapping me in the face. Mm. So this is this is a great segue to the next topic that I wanted to unpack with you, which is the topic of a life quake. And so one of the main themes that you talk about are these disruptors that come over the course of life. Um, you've categorized them into 52 different categories, which I think was awesome. But you also mentioned that there are moments in our lives where we're going to face multiple disruptions simultaneously. And... As someone who has gone through what, what I am now classifying as my own personal life quake, uh, transitioning from the military after 13 years of service, moving to a new city, purchasing a home, you know, going through a global pandemic, um, as someone who recently experienced my own life quake, can you unpack a little bit more the research that you found about the significance of these moments, especially as we collectively, I think, are all experiencing a huge period of transition, whether it be personal or professional? Um, I can try. Um, so what did I learn from this whole process? What I learned was kind of three big ideas. Idea number one, the linear life is dead, okay? What is the linear life? The linear life is the idea that you're going to have one job, one relationship, one spirituality, one sexuality from adolescence to assisted living. So that idea is deader than it's ever been. In the minutes before I joined this conversation, I, I'm, I, I'm writing a book now about work and how we you know, kind of navigate various work transitions in our lives. And you were in the military. Like, like the military kind of embodies the idea of a linear track, right? You come in at one level and then you go yep. to the next level and then the next level. And it has it, it not only has it very delineated levels, it's got a little signifier of, you know, you get a little badge with every little level, yep. right? Your income changes, your responsibility changes. Like that's a kind of classic uh, linear life. Um, so, but we do that with everything. We do that with 
um, with family, right? Single to married to having children to empty nesting to, you know, assisted living. Like that, well, guess what? Half of us now end those relationships. People have children without being married. Like that's all of those linear constructs are gone. So that's big idea number one. The linear life is dead. Um, and we can talk more about that if, if you want, because it turns out the whole idea of the linear life was a kind of aberration in the 20th century. They didn't think about it before, and we don't think we're not going to go back there. The second idea is that the nonlinear life involves many more life transitions, okay? So my data show that we go through three dozen of what I call, and as you just mentioned, disruptors in the course of our lives. So a disruptor could be as small as twisting your ankle or um, as large as losing a loved one, okay? And there are, as, as you said, there are 52 of categories of, the, of disruptors that people go through. Last time a list like this was made was in the 60s, and there were like 37, there are 58. Life is more nonlinear. Um, but most of those we get through relatively easy. Um, so let's just do the math a little bit. Three dozen, that's every 12 to 18 months. Okay, that, that's more often than most people see a dentist. We go through a life disruptor. But one in 10 of these becomes so big, it leads to a massive period of change. And that's what I call a life quake, okay? And we go through three to five of these life quakes in the course of our adult lives. Their average length is four to five years. Again, do the math, three to five life quakes, four to five years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we are spending in a period of transition. Like you or someone you know is going through one now. And to just to you know, go a tad deeper for a second, I took these life quakes and I broke them down into this grid, right? And so one of them was voluntary versus involuntary, okay? 57% are involuntary, 43% are voluntary, right? So 57% are involuntary, an involuntary life quake is your spouse cheats on you, right? Um, a natural disaster, um, a, a famine, right? Or, you know, you, you have an accident and you lose the use of your legs. 43% are voluntary, right? You leave your job for a new uh, venture, okay? You change, you become more religious or less religious. You cheat on your spouse, right? So now I looked at this as somebody, I'm a, I was born in 1964, so I'm nominally a boomer, um, and I looked at this and I thought, well, you know, 43% of these are voluntary. Awesome. People are embracing the opportunities of the linear, of the nonlinear life. Like they're making changes. They're taking control of their lives. Now, members of my team, most of them are millennials, which I'm guessing you are a millennial. And they looked at this and like, whoa, 57% are involuntary? Like I don't control my life? Like, you know, wait a minute. This is not what they told me. So, <laughs> but broadly speaking, that's evenly divided, Right. Now, the other category I looked at, Kenny, as you know, was um, personal versus collective. So a personal life quake would be something that happens to you or your family. A collective is one that happens to the entire community. And so basically, like the smallest category was collective involuntary life quake. Now, I worked on this project for essentially half a decade. And then the book comes out and literally in the middle of a global pandemic, which is a collective involuntary life quake. Now, that leads to, I think, what you're talking about, which we can talk about separately, which is these, for whatever reason, these events in our lives tend to clump, 
right? They, they happen on top of one another, right? So just when you total your car, you know, your mother needs cataract surgery, right? Okay, just when you get fired from your job, you discover that your child has an anxiety disorder, you know, and your, and your wife has breast cancer. So that's what you're talking about. What you're talking about is what I call a pileup, which is when all these things, are, you, you quit your job and you, 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 you know, you, you leave the military, right? So suddenly you have to change your, how you dress, okay? And you have lots of free time you didn't have before. And then you have a relationship challenge and then you want to start a podcast. That's a pileup. And sometimes it's accidental or just coincidental, but a lot of times they're connected, right? Because what happens is, you know, sort of like almost like our immune system is weaker. And then something that would be a disruptor becomes a life quake, right? So like you have this idea that you want to form a podcast, but you know, sometimes we don't act on our ideas, but then, okay, wait a minute. Now you've left the military. Now there's a pandemic. You're like, well, hell, my life is already thrown upside down. I might as well throw a podcast onto the fire. So that's kind of what I call um, a pileup. And before I let you respond, I'll just say the third biggest idea. So the linear life is dead. The nonlinear life involves many life transitions. And then the third kind of big theme is that life transitions are a skill that we can and must master. And that, of course, is what life is in the transitions my book is all about, which is sort of a toolkit for what you do when you find, yourselves in, in, um, find yourself in, in one of these moments where you're suddenly faced with a pile of donuts. So... There's a lot to unpack here, and I'm trying to figure out, there's, a, there's many different directions we could take this, but uh, because of the audience that this is for, I, I, I want to I wanna take us back to life transitions being a skill. Um, because as I think about the Breakline community, we are in a fortunate position to work with folks who are coming from underselected, underrepresented backgrounds, veterans, women, people of color who... Um, are transitioning into the tech, the tech industry. One of the things that we're asking our participants to do um, and that you've mentioned in your book is what's called an autobiographical occasion mm. where, you know, because we're transitioning from one chapter of life to another, we're transitioning to a new job, we have to go back and take inventory of our professional experiences and codify them in a way which we're extracting meaning uh, in this case, for a new job, but um, you know, I, I think it's just um, it's important for us to take inventory and stock of our lives at these various moments. Can you give a little bit more insight into the importance of that autobiographical occasion? Well, first of all, I love this word and I love this question. And but before I even get into that, I just want to say um, I'm here because I love what you're doing, and I think it's incredibly important. And as we are in this moment, you know, our entire culture went through a life quake in 2020. Um, excuse me, went through a pileup, went through a series of life quakes, but basically went through a pileup. And what that pileup involved was a combination of um, a, a social, a, a public health crisis, right? Political upheaval. <laughs> that was an election year. We have technological disruption, and then on top of that, we layered in um, the social justice movement that was. Um, you know, kind of kicked into higher gear by what happened um, in the wake of uh, George Floyd, George Floyd's death. Now, that was not, as I don't have to tell you, the first um, of uh, the kind of occasions of, of police brutality, as we know. But why was that 
the one that, that, that sent tens of millions of people into the streets and, and sort of amped up the conversation. I think because of the pileup phenomenon, and I don't think this is discussed enough, which is to say, because our immune system was weakened, because everybody was home watching the news all the time, right? because everybody realized we already were at an inflection point in our culture, uh, it's, it, that's the reason, in my view, that something that might have been an otherwise event <laughs> suddenly became higher. And you can add, what was the fourth one I said, technological disruption, we had a video that was un undeniable. So I think the pileup phenomenon is, uh, helps explain why um, the social justice movement has been um, uh, deepened and became a more, an even more urgent topic, and but also a higher topic of conversation. So I think that is some uh, some context. Okay. So, but now what we are doing is we're trying to understand what do you do if you're in that situation. Okay. And here is where I do think the fundamental idea of storytelling becomes really important. Okay. So there's two things that are going on. Okay. And I want to get to what you, well, let me start with what you said. What you said was an autobiographical occasion, okay? That's a, um, a kind of forgotten academic term um, uh, uh, identified by a sociologist named Zussman in the early 1980s that I'm desperately trying to kind of revive because I love this. An autobiographical occasion is a moment where you have to re rethink and revise and revisit your life story, okay? That's what happens in any life quake, okay? There is a pause. And what you do with the pause is that you have to um, reprocess and retell your story, okay? So we're having this conversation um, at a moment when millions of people every month are leaving their job, right? So last year, the topic was we, we don't have jobs. Now it's, do I want to go back, back to the job that I already have? And in April 2021, 4 million people quit their job. It was the highest number it recorded in history. In September 2021, it hit 4.3. It's only growing uh, over time because people are saying, okay, now I want to just rethink the story. Do I want to go back to that job? Do I want to spend more time with my family? Okay. Do I want to have multiple jobs that can maybe serve different parts of my life? That's an autobiographical occasion. And what you do with it is that you need to do fundamentally, this is the topic of a book I'm just starting to write now, is actually ask yourself a series of storytelling questions um, where you revisit your story. So that's the, But that's only the first thing that's going on, Kenny, which is that we each are using the pause to rethink our life story. The even more important thing, arguably, is that all of the institutions that we might want to work at are also in an autobiographical occasion, right? Because I don't have to tell you, this idea has been sweeping Silicon Valley of, you know, is it, you know, tech too white? Like we had Oscars so white a few years ago, right? Why have t technology terms, you know, firms not kept up, okay? Is it <laughs> that um, only, you know, straight white men can do these jobs? Or is it that we're not looking in the right places, <laughs> that, we're not confronting our bias that we tend to hire people who have come from our background, right? So the advantage that you have is that you're at a moment where you're rethinking your story, but so are most of the places that are hiring, and that's the unique opportunity that we have right now, is that we can merge these two autobiographical um, uh, occasions into a massive rewriting um, of not just the story of individuals and firms, but also of algorithms, of expectations, of the kind of people we're going to put forward in our advertising, of we're, we're recognizing that there's some implicit uh, bias, and in some cases more, um, in, in all of these nodes of interaction. 
So I want to I want to I want to take this back a, a, a second here as well because I think you just pulled out something that was significantly important that I want to make sure our lesson our listeners caught. But both on the individual and the collective level, there is a rewriting of narratives as to who deserves a seat at the table, um, the amount of agency that we have over our own lives. And one of the questions that I was actually very excited to ask your opinion on is what is your recommendation when there is this disconnect, where there is this um, misalignment between the individual narrative mm-hmm. and the narrative that society projects onto mm-hmm. you. Because uh, a lot of the conversations that we have, um, you know, especially with folks who are coming from underselected backgrounds, is that they did not even see themselves um, in a position where they could transition into the tech industry or they didn't see themselves in, the, in a position where they could aspire um, to have a job because of the way that an industry looks or because of the stories that are told to them about themselves, whether it be through media or through mm-hmm. you know other forms of outlets. So how do you reconcile those things um, based off of the research that you've been able to do? Well, let me begin. First of all, that's an incredibly subtle question. Um, let, let me first of all say on the topic of work, that the kind of moment that we're in now, a collective rewriting of meaning, has not happened that often in human history, right? So if you look at the history of work, right, for most of the 100,000-year history of work, there there were not these moments, okay? People worked where they lived. 80% of people spent 80% of their time producing the food that had required, you know, humanity to live. It re- the first of these kind of mom- of these kind of inflection moments occurred in the middle of the 19th century when we went from an agricultural to an industrial economy and suddenly people moved to cities, immigration picked up, and suddenly you had a bunch of dislocated people. And that's actually when the field of career counseling was born was in the early 20th century because you had all these people who now needed something to do and a new way to talk about it, okay? So careers are fundamentally the combination of, think of work as kind of numbers plus words, okay? And so a career fundamentally is math and literature, right? So there's the math of how much time you're working and what your benefits are and what your salary is. And that's most of what we talk about when we talk about work. But there is no math in this case without literature, which is the story, which is the meaning, okay? And which is how you actually describe what you do. So the first of these changes was basically in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then the second one, and that's when career counseling was born. And then the second of these big changes was after World War II, and that's when the resume was born, right? So no one had resumes because they didn't need resumes. And so what is the resume but a linear list of jobs that you did that seems to suggest that there is a very clear ladder, okay? The idea, you know, that's the way to describe a job now, a life now, is absurd. So we are now in a kind of a third big moment where people move laterally, they take side steps, okay? They have multi, they have side jobs and, and different things. So people's lives move vertically and horizontally now, and they put together a collection of things that they do. You have a job, okay? You have a side job like a podcast. Maybe you have a hope job, which is working on a... Um, you know, working on a screenplay or a blueberry muffin recipe to sell at the farmer's market. Like people have a collection of things that they do to give meaning. But but to go to the specific question that you asked, I think is incredibly critical because 
if you think about a job interview, most of it we think of as the business is, is static and the person in the, the interview is the one who is erratic, right? Or he's moving and you're trying to fit. But that is not an accurate representation because the truth is that both of them are erratic. Both of them are moving. Come on now. Both of them are trying come to figure now. out is there going to be work from home or what are the rules going to be? And I have just come off of interviewing a hundred and, you know, another few hundred people, all of whom were underrepresented people, 80%, 82% to be precise, were underrepresented people, black, indigenous, people of color, people with disabilities, LGBTQ, first generation immigrants, minority religions. And when you talk to them about work, what they often tell you about that moment, that kind of node, if you will, um, uh, is that they are not only telling their story in a, say, job interview, they are also helping the recruiter rewrite the story of the organization's life. So I talked to a woman who had a very prominent job as a, as a manager of Boston Market, like 22, she was the employee uh, of the year. And then this individual went through a gender transition from which she, uh, she presented male to she presented female. And she then started over in banking. Same thing. I might as well change careers, change genders, do the whole thing. And this person was married and had children. And she went through like 50 interviews and nobody would give her the time of day until she ultimately had to confront them and say, here's why your story, because she's doing this in Florida. And many of the people, this was kind of a traditional industry in banking that wasn't used to at the time she did this with transgender employees. And she had to say, do you know the size of the market of the LGBTQ? You know, do you? So she had to educate in some ways the person she was talking to about how embracing this non-traditional story would help the institution tell its story in a way that was more contemporary. You know, I think what I love about that story is the realization that this is a two-way marketplace and, you know, people can vote with their feet. And I think that's what I love most about the statistics that you shared about um, people transitioning professionally is we're living in a day and age where there is a level of empowerment. There is a level of flexibility around, um, you know, the, the, the jobs that we choose to take and how we uh, choose to spend our time. And so I really love this idea. And this is something that we share with all of our breakliners is absolutely you need to present yourself and put your best foot forward. But in that same breath, it's the realization that it's your job as an individual to assess culture. It's your job to assess fit. It's your job to assess, is this a place or a space that's going to allow me to grow intellectually, that's going to allow me to exercise all of the gifts and grow as a professional um, and so I really love that you teased that point out because I think it is something, especially now, that is top of mind for a lot of people. And so and why I is that, by the way? Why is that? Because in, in that second phase, what I call kind of you know economy 3.0, 1.0 was the ag world, and 2.0 was the was the industrial revolution, and then the 3.0 was the kind of the knowledge worker world of the late uh, 20th century. In that context, you'd go into a company, and the company was 
a family, right? It was paternalistic, right? You stayed there and you climbed that linear track that you were on when you were in the military, okay? And then that came crashing down, as everybody knows. In the, in the 80s and the 90s, turned out they'll outsource your job, right? You know, they'll, they'll ask you to move if it's not good for your family. They, will, they, they, they abandoned their commitment to you, which in effect forced us into a situation of where we are now, which is people living more individualized careers, right? The customized career, uh, they call it. And so as long as they're not showing it to you, you don't have to show it to them anymore. And there is this um, marketplace. And by the way, what's driving that Silicon Valley, frankly, even the engineers in Silicon Valley, because they can now work from anywhere. And as they're setting these rules, come back to the office sometime, part time, you're seeing the rest of the economy um, deal with what is even an even greater shift uh, toward the worker. But how do you do it? I, I just want to mention this before we um, run out of time, which is there is this sort of mechanism to kind of run what I call a meaning audit about what do you want to be doing? How do you want to be spending your time? And that gets back to these ABCs of meaning that I, that I talk about in life is in the transitions, right? So the hardest thing for me to figure out is how do you make a series of decisions, Kenny, that's different from how I might make it as Bruce and she might make it as Ashley and, and, and you know, they might make it as, um, uh, as Wynn. Um, and because we have different motivations. Okay, you tell me you're in the military, well then I know something about you, right? You tell me now you have a podcast, I know something different about you. You tell me that you um, are a person of faith, I know something different. And it, because if you go back 100 years, most people had to do what their parents wanted them to do, live where their parents wanted them to live, believe what their parents wanted them to believe, love who their parents wanted them to love. We don't have to do any of that anymore. We can change everything, including our bodies, but that's a lot of change, and so how do we decide? And we have what I call the ABCs of meaning. So the A is agency. That's what you do or make or build or create. Um, that's often our work life or our creative life. The B is belonging, our relationships, our friends, our neighbors, our co-religionists, those we're in a political movement with. Um, that's belonging. That's our, the love side of our lives. And then the C is a cause, a calling something higher than ourselves, right? Maybe it's country, okay? Maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's climate change, okay? Uh, maybe it's uh, you know indigenous people. Maybe it's LGBTQ rights. So we all have all three of these, but we have them in a different kind of balance. Um, uh, and you know, I'm very much of an ABC. Like I'm a writer and a creator. I'm very agentic. I'm a very involved parent, a super involved dad. I'm very belonging oriented. Like cause is less important to me. My wife, Linda, started and runs an organization called Endeavor that supports high-impact entrepreneurs in 50 countries around the world. She's super cause-oriented, give, give, give all day. She's a co-founder and a CEO, so she's agentic, belonging, like she tolerates the rest of us. So I'm an ABC and she's a CAB, <laughs> but what happens, and you know, again, the little I know about your life, when we go into these life quakes or these pileups or these pauses or when we're confronted with a pile of donuts, we, we recalibrate. So maybe when you were in the service, you were very cause-oriented, and then you got out and you wanted to do something more for yourself. Or maybe you're a parent and you've become an empty nester or you've been caring for an aging relative and that person dies and you're like, okay, enough of belonging. <laughs> like, I want to give back or do something for myself. So people shift, they, what I call shape shift, in these times of change. And so if you, are, if you feel like you're in that moment, give yourself a kind of audit 
where you are like, am I overbalanced or over you know, indexed on one of these three? And then maybe think in your autobiographical occasion um, of how you want to rebalance. Mm. So this is a perfect segue to one of the final questions I want to ask you, which is you started to unpack the toolkit a little mm. bit. And I know even for myself, as someone who was going through a voluntary transition, even with all the things on the other side of the transition being positive, Inshallah, it was still <laughs> an anxiety-producing yeah. moment of life. Mm -hmm. And there was this longing for this sense of normalcy and this longing for you know the end of this transition to arrive. So without giving too much of a spoiler alert, because I want people to go out and I want them to read and purchase the book, um, what are some tools that people can put in their toolkit to make these transitions a little more seamless, a little more painless? Um, sorry, there's no normal. We're gonna have to get used to, to change. <laughs> um, not sure I can make them painless, pain's part of them. But uh, to the spirit of your question, let me say, when people tend to get into a uh, life quake, they, they tend to do one of two things. They either, I'm trying to guess what you are, the, what I learned about you, but they either tend to make a 212 item to-do list and say, I'm gonna get through it in a weekend and I'm gonna get a blue, you know, I'm gonna get a gold star and a blue medal, you know, and a blue ribbon. Um, or they lie in a fetal position under the covers with a cat and they say, I'm the only one who's ever gone through this. I'm never going to get through it. Well, unfortunately, both are wrong. Um, but if you look at enough of them, uh, you see certain patterns. And, and, and the, the most important thing to remember is that the life transition itself is the way through, right? So the life quake puts us on our heels, but the life transition puts us on our toes. And when we, when we sort of make that decision that we want to do something, that's when we know we're in the transition itself. So there are three phases. There's what I call the long goodbye, where you mourn the past and you um, say goodbye. Uh, then there's this messy middle where you shed certain habits and experiment with new ones. And then there's this new beginning um, where, you, um, where you begin to unveil your new self. And I alluded to my mother recently, and, I, and since we're nearing the end of this conversation, I'll double back there. So as you know, but we've not mentioned out loud, um, my father, whom I mentioned at the outset of this as having inspired this project um, through this um, period of depression and his suicide spree a number of years ago, I started sending him questions every Monday morning. I helped him create an autobiographical occasion, and he answered those questions for eight years and in the process has completed a 65,000-word memoir one story, uh, one answer, uh, one question at a time. Um, but his life ended uh, a week ago tonight um, of natural causes. Um, and it was, it's been a very painful experience, but also an emotional one as we've been reflecting on his life in recent days. And I'm literally just back at my home from spending a week in Georgia with my mother and my, my family and people, when they go through an event like this, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, they're kind of two poles. Like either they kind of are in denial and they want to leave everything as a kind of a shrine or they want or they want to turn the page. Well, my mother, having taken care of my father for 22 years with Parkinson's, is very much on the extreme on the side of wanting to turn the page. OK. And so this weekend I just spent, you know, in my childhood home. She was like already giving away the clothes like, you know, which of these, you know, which of these items of your father's uh, do you want? 
and and I was so kind of fascinated and overwhelmed and kind of, I'm not sure that I'm ready, mom. Um, but then I realized she's using one of the tools. She's shedding. So she, one of the tools of a life transition is to shed, is to get rid of habits, even habits that you might want, have liked once is people shed customs or habits or, you know, or clothes or weight or, or different things because my mother was a art teacher and artist earlier in her life and she's eager to get back to painting while she can while she still has vibrancy and vision and creativity in her and that's a, the tool that goes with shedding which is people experiment and not like creativity in the abstract sense kind of like they paint or they write poetry or they cook or they paint birdhouses or they learn to play ukulele or they take up as one woman who was a retired chemistry professor who had cancer and shed her husband because he wasn't supportive of her. Um, she was like, I want to be a ballerina. My mother wouldn't let me. So she starts adult ballet classes. So there's two of them. There's a kind of a shedding process and also a creative experimentation. And one is sort of helping to say goodbye to the old self. And then one is to begin to create the new one. And just to think about the pandemic, what was the number one cliche? What did people do? They baked, right? We're gonna sourdough our way through this. And I have, may have been the least surprised person because that little act of creativity of you know baking a loaf of bread uh, uh, allows us to imagine that we can bake a new self. So, First off, I just want to say thank you because I know the uh, we, we can't plan the timing of, of um, you know, events in life and the fact that you were able to carve out time um, during a transition in your own life does not go unnoticed. So I just want to thank you for carving out the time. One final thing that I wanted to share with our listeners is you just shared a very moving you, you shared the eulogy that you wrote for your mm. father mm. on LinkedIn and one of the things that I wanted to share with the listeners and um, I hope this is okay with you is I personally feel like I have become a better father and a better husband and a better son because of reading your book mm. and hearing the um, emphasis that you've placed on family and, and being intentional about creating memories and capturing the stories. So I wanted to leave you with the last word for any advice that you have for our listeners who are trying to figure out how to just extract meaning from their lives, how to make sense of it all, um, and really just find that deep sense of fulfillment um, that I can tell you found um, in, in your own life. First of all, thank you for, for saying that. And um, because I have kind of no filter in my own life uh, right now, uh, um, I'll, I'll share with you that, you know, I mentioned that my wife is a high-profile, high-flying uh, person with deep roots in the Valley and in the tech world. And, you know, when this happened with my dad last week, we, she was, we were at a particularly busy moment, both in our family life here with teenage daughters and in her professional life. And we're kind of a couple of days into this. And I, and I said to my wife, I was like, you realize that this is not just an emotional experience for me, it's for you. And she then slowed down a little bit and kind of made contact with her emotions. And we had a very, very profound weekend experience where she was really affected by this loss 
that we all have. And I, I guess, you know, um, perhaps it's not unfair to think that we're talking about underserved communities in the tech world, but I, I want to go back to something I just zipped through earlier, <laughs> is that work, like life, is a combination of numbers and words, and it is a combination of math and literature. And if you're over-indexed on the math, um, I'm here to remind you that there are emotions and that there are literature, and there is no meaning without encountering, uh, uh, encountering the story that surrounds us, even as we are awash in, um, in numbers. And so um, I will mention, I will pause before giving a final thought to say that uh, I did share the eulogy that I gave in the newsletter that I've started on, um, on uh, Facebook's new platform called Bulletin. It's called The Nonlinear Life, and I now uh, write about these themes uh, three days a week. Um, about life transitions and about family and about words and inspiration. And so I'd love anybody who's listening to join the conversation. And of course, you can find me at brucefiler.com or all the social medias and, and, and in my book. But since you asked for a final thought, I will say um, that the Italians have a wonderful expression for what we're talking about, uh, which is lupus in fabula. Now, the fabula is the fairy tale, right? That's your fabulous life when everything is going right. Uh, but the, the lupus is the wolf. Um, and the expression is the wolf in the fairy tale. And, and the idea is just when everything's going perfect, a wolf shows up to, you know, to disrupt it. And that, you know, and that wolf could be a pandemic or a tornado or a downsizing or a divorce or a diagnosis. Um, you don't know what the wolf is going to be and you don't know when it's going to show up. And I think our instinct, all of us, is that we'd like to banish the wolf, that we want our lives to be uh, the fairy tale. Um, but uh, it's the wolf, you can't banish it, because it's the wolf that makes it a fairy tale. And it is your ability to get over, around, or through, or under, um, or over the wolf that makes you the hero of the fairy tale. And if there's one thing I've learned is that we all want to be the hero of our own fairy tale. So everybody's got a, everybody's got a fairy tale but everybody's also gotten a wolf. And if there's one thing I learned beyond that we want to be the hero of our story is that we can't do it alone. And, that, and the reason I showed up today because you have, you know, you have, you're trying to create this community. It's a community that will serve all of us well. And I wanted in a minuscule way to be one of the trees in the forest that's encouraging you along your own path um, because I know that we're not going to get through this uh, together. But I do know that we can get through it if we do work together. Mm. Folks, this is what I would consider deep wisdom. Uh, Bruce, we are so appreciative for your time today. Um, I would encourage every single one of you, if you have not checked out the book, Life is in the Transitions, please check it out, um, especially for our Breakline community as we're trying to navigate work transitions, life transitions. Um, you have given us a master's class and so thank you so much for your time today. We are wishing you nothing but the absolute best. And we're hoping that you rejoin us uh, when your new book uh, is released. So thank you once again for your time, Bruce. And we're wishing you absolutely nothing but the best. Thank you. i see you down the road. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.